Hi, my name is Simon O'Dowd, and you're listening to Catholic vs. Atheist. So, uh, just tell us a little bit about yourself, if you would, please. Who you are, what you believe, and how you came to believe what you believe. Sure. So, I was born in New South Wales, uh, which is one of the more populated states in uh, Australia, into... I guess a vaguely religious family, if, if that makes sense. There were, you know, christenings and uh, just a, a general belief in God, the Christian God, but not, not really, you know, we weren't going to church every weekend. It wasn't really discussed. It was kind of just one of those assumed things. As, as I kind of entered my teenage years, I... Um, Started, I guess, asking asking questions about how do we how do we know these things that everyone seems to know, and the more I looked into it, the more it seemed to be based on faith um, rather than the concrete evidence. And I kind of looked into that, looked into the arguments for both sides, and just initially entered a position where I was, uh, I guess, what you'd call a strong atheist, where it was like, "There's definitely no God, and I know all of this because I do." And then as I kind of uh, looked more into it, I realized that that's not a very honest position to hold either. Uh, and now I kind of settle on what is often referred to as weak atheism or no one knows the actual answer. So the more honest position is to say, I don't know and I'm not convinced uh, rather than just believe it outright. What would you say was one of the earliest memories you can remember that has anything to do with religion? There's, there's not, there's not really much of a religious presence in my family. It was something where they were christened. Uh, some members of my family were circumcised. It's, it's kind of, it's a bit all over the place, if I'm honest. Why and how did you discover my little podcast? Because it's not very big or popular. And do you have an interest in religion generally, or in Christianity in particular? I guess there's two kinds of uh, atheists in the world. There's the ones who could not give less of a care about religion. Uh, I'm the other kind. I am obsessed with it. I talk about it with everyone who I can. Uh, I have a very good friend who is a Catholic, and she and I discuss it every single time I can pin her down and get her to talk to me about it. So I, my, my YouTube algorithm is just religious videos all the time. One of the earliest conversations that we had, which was in the comment section of one of your videos, was the video that you did with Aaron Ra. And that was the first thing that I noticed because I was so used to people not being able to actually have a conversation with Aaron. Um, so just searching, I guess, through videos for, for Aaron, it, yeah, yours popped up. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. I haven't actually watched this one, which is rare because I've watched way too many of them. Uh, and that's what introduced me to your channel and got you and I talking. Yeah. Um, before we get into sort of the nuts and bolts of, of religion and atheism and all that, I wanted to ask you about this Catholic friend of yours. How long have you known her? How did you meet her? And when did your love of philosophy and religion start burgeoning? And uh, what was her reaction to that? Yeah, so uh, we we actually worked together. We started working together about four and a half years ago, but we didn't start really discussing the nuts and bolts of religion and philosophy until probably about two years ago. Um, and then we are actually in the same 
team once again. It's an interstate thing for my company. Uh, so we're interacting a lot more, I guess, on a regular basis. And, and because I've gone even further down the rabbit hole of the YouTube algorithm uh, of atheist videos, um, I have so much more that I just want to get the perspective of a believer because the thing that worries me, I think, the most is being stuck in my own echo chamber and only hearing the opinions of people who agree with me. Well, you could start your own podcast or your own YouTube channel. That would be a good way to get different voices. You may have inspired me, David. Yeah. Brilliant. I think I think the first thing that I'd, I'd love to get more of an understanding of is what is the difference in the faith applied by a Catholic versus the faith applied by a Protestant versus, say, the faith of a Hindu? There's a three-tier system in my categorization of all worldviews, including atheism. Basically, you have a three-step hierarchy leading up to the Catholic Church. The first step that an atheist would need to take, and those that I categorize with the atheists, which includes monists, solipsists, and I can explain all these things if you want to get more detail about it, but basically... Solipsist I'm familiar with. Monist is a, is a term I'm not... Monism just says everything that is, is God. On the one hand, you have atheists that are naturalists and that are pantheists in the sense of sort of like uh, the way that Spinoza maybe saw pantheism. And then on the other extreme, you've got the more spiritual end where you've got Buddhists who believe that the only reality is the one mind of God and that everything here below is illusion, the separation is illusion, the otherness of the so-called other is illusion, the one reality is the one mind. So this, along with atheism of all different varieties, I clump them all together, and that's sort of like my ground floor, if you will. To get to the first step, the first level is called monotheism, and this is a distinct step in the right direction where we acknowledge that God is separate from creation, and there is one God, and that could be logically known with certainty. And then the second step would be into Christianity. And this requires a historical analysis of Jesus Christ. Who was he? And then the final step is based on authority. And that brings you to Catholicism. So basically, you've got monism, then you've got monotheism, and then you've got Christianity. And the final step is into Roman Catholicism. I understand, I understand the scale to an extent. I'm not seeing why someone would make the jump, I guess, from atheism. You know, I don't know how to explain psychologically how I went from Protestant Christian as a child to a sort of a nice guy agnostic atheist, and then my atheism became more and more intense until the point where I was a Satanist, explicitly calling myself a Satanist. And then I suddenly converted to Roman Catholicism. So how do you explain that psychologically? I don't know. You you had a journey to the most extreme being Satanist. Do you have a definition of Satanist? Well, you need to understand that there are two major branches of Satanism. One is theistic and the other is atheistic. And I was very firmly in the atheistic Satanist camp. And the ostensible purpose of labeling yourself an atheistic Satanist is to mock and ridicule all religion, but Christianity in particular. It's a theatrical movement. It's not to be taken seriously. And it is 
putting reason, rationality first. It's basically rationalism. And if it sounds spooky and scary and intimidating to the old ladies at the church that your mom attends, so much the better, right? But that's not really the point. The point is to embrace the extreme imagery of Satan, knowing as an atheist that Satan does not exist, and knowing, obviously, as an atheist that God does not exist. So it's all theatrical, it's all a show, and it's all a mockery of the irrational, because what is God to the Satanist is reason, and not only reason in an abstract way, but one's own reason. So there's sort of an existential component to atheistic Satanism, where I am is the ultimate reality. So it comes back to that solipsistic overlap that I talked about at the beginning. So is is it in your understanding that a Satanist could not be charitable, altruistic, because there's a, an element of self-obsession there? Or is it just that they are interacting with the reality in the way that they perceive that reality? Everyone has their character, everyone has their personality. When I was an atheistic Satanist, I was still more moral than some people that called themselves Christian. And now that I'm Catholic, there are still atheistic Satanists that are more moral than I am. But uh, people are people. This is the way that I'm coming to understand that there's only really one distinctive, important and essential difference, and that is our orientation toward God as the highest good or toward self as the highest good. But behavioristically, it's often very, very hard to sort people out into those two categories. You would need to look into the heart. And that's why it says in the Bible, we should not judge the heart because only God can judge the heart. And uh, it's easy to do the right things for the wrong reasons. It's easy to do the selfish thing and have it look altruistic. It's hard to see the motives really and the uh, inner workings of the heart. So all that to say, I think we're all moral beings. I don't feel morally superior to any human on the planet. And uh, I just thank God that I have chosen to orient myself toward him with his help. Is, is, is that then an assumption that the motivation for a non-believer is selfish? No, I, this is a concrete experiential existential set of data that I'm drawing on. I was for 25 years an atheist. And the way that I justified the limits to my depravity, to my self-indulgence, the way that I justified that to myself, because there was part of me asking, why don't you go further? Because, you know, I was a very timid sinner, even as a Satanist. So I would ask myself in the intimacy of a dark night of laying awake and just pondering reality, I would ask myself, why not push further? And I did push further as a Satanist. You know, I was doing things then that I wouldn't do now. But why was I so timid in terms of grabbing and getting? Because that really is one of the tenets of Satanism, is to be bold in that way. And I was not very bold in that way. So I guess I was not a very good Satanist. But then again, I'm not a very good Catholic. So maybe I'm just mediocre in whatever I do. You've, you've, you've obviously done a fair amount of reflecting on your own experience. I think I can hear that a lot in every single thing that you say comparing your experience as a Satanist and as an atheist versus being a Catholic. So a lot, a lot of the time we're hearing about your experience like this, and I think you've also highlighted a really interesting point there where you said that you're, you're, you're not a typical Catholic. I would say you're not a typical Catholic. Is that a fair statement? 
Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. So you want a typical Catholic, you want a typical Satanist. And then when I ask you about the motivations of non-believers, you're telling me about your experience. Is there a chance that your experience as a Satanist or an atheist, could that not be different for other people? Well, yeah, you need to understand that there is a subjective component to everything that we finite creatures experience. There is going to be that subjective component, but you should also keep in mind that there is a truly eternal and absolute objective morality by which we judge and by which we will be judged. So this is one of my most deadly attacks on the atheist when they start to judge me morally, I, I just, I, I love it because that implies one of two things, either that their moral judgments are eternal, absolute, and objective, in which case, welcome to monotheism, because that's my God, that standard by which you're judging me, or they're not, in which case I could just laugh off your judgment as purely temporary, relativistic, and subjective. So, you brought in this idea that maybe everything is colored by my subjective experience. Well, is everything up for grabs? Is everything relativistic? Is everything merely subjective and temporary? I, th I think when, it, when we're talking about things like truth, objectively verifiable is probably uh, a, key, a key factor. Now, obviously, that doesn't mean that it's always going to be 100% correct because... As you said, we're we're finite, fallible beings. We can we can make mistakes, and I think that's why the methodological naturalism and, and, and the scientific method have come about. Is part of that is the acceptance. Well, we're going to make mistakes fairly often. So having a system in place to be able to prove yourself or have others and and to motivate others to prove you wrong that seems to be the most effective way of getting to the absolute truth, if the absolute truth is even reachable, which in all likelihood is probably not, where when we appeal to an external, eternal truth, that appeal and that uh, assumption that that being exists is either going to be faith-based or fallaciously based, or am I missing a, a key stepping stone in the middle? Yeah, yeah, you're missing out on the philosophical proofs of the existence of God that are, are well-established and airtight. And it is actually a Catholic dogma that we can know with certainty by the natural light of reason without recourse to divine revelation that God exists. And we can know many of his attributes, that God is not temporal, that God is not spatial, that he's absolutely infinite in every perfection, that he's absolutely simple, he's not composed of parts. These are uh, airtight philosophical arguments. I recommend you look into them if you don't know them. And uh, if you have any questions about my limited understanding, I'll be glad to uh, help you as best I can. Yeah, if you're able to give me a, a crash course, it, we might have to rename this to uh, Catholic vs. Catholic if you do a good job. <laughs> I, th I think it's that missing part of the proofs of God, the, the philosophical proofs of God, and, and how we can be confident that that translates into an actual proof um, rather than just, well, that concept looks good on paper. Yeah, one of my favorite proofs of God's existence is that when I say that God is God and that I'm not God, I know that I'm not wrong because if I'm wrong when I say that I'm not God, then I am God and God cannot be wrong. 
therefore God is God. So this is one of my favorite proofs of God's existence. It's a solipsistic proof. You need to have experienced solipsism to get that. Most typical atheists that I meet say, well, obviously you're not God, but neither is God. And they just haven't seen what I've seen in terms of this sort of existential encounter with being itself. You can't essentially be wrong if you are God. But is that not defining a God into existence? Is that is that not defining the traits of something that isn't demonstrated to have that trait? No, well, the thing is that being is not like other attributes. Like when we say an apple is juicy or it's red and it has being. Being is in a different category altogether. And this is why I asked you if you're comfortable admitting that everything in this natural world is contingent, because that is the definition of contingency, is that our essence is not existence. So this microphone that I'm speaking to, it exists, you know, given a certain set of assumptions, it exists. And that fact, the fact that it exists means that it is possible for it to exist, it's a necessary truth that it is possible for it to exist. Even though it's contingent, it's possible for it to exist. So we have this necessary truth that we can build on. And then we have this idea of being itself, which is self-evident. And it's something that we bump up against that we need an explanation for. And because everything in this world might not have been, everything that we encounter here is composed of parts. Everything here we, that we encounter here is composed also of being and of essence. So this composition of essence and existence logically and necessarily philosophically leads every time to the conclusion that there is this non-composite, perfectly simple being whose essence is existence, and that's what everyone calls God. You, like, I understood, you explained why, why you have become convinced by this. I think there is still a gap in the middle. I, I will agree with you in as much as everything, I'll summarize it in, in non-philosophical terms, and, and, and please correct me for everything that is important I miss out. Uh, everything that exists does exist, and therefore everything that exists is possible to exist. I'm not sure how we got to the eternal creator of everything though. That bit always sounds like a leap for me. Yeah. The analogy that I like to use lately, this is something I've been toying with as a way to sort of communicate poetically to people what I'm talking about with this existential experiential confrontation with being in and of itself is death. When some people, you ask them about death, are you going to die? They say, yes, of course I am. And they, they've thought about it and so on and so forth. But when their plane goes down into the ocean and 12 days later, they get rescued, and by some miracle, they're one of the three people that survived. And then if you ask them, are you going to die, they have a qualitatively different perspective on death, on life. And if they've had a spiritual experience through that near-death experience, then they will probably be religious. They will probably have a lot of beliefs that you find flaky and, uh, or to put it nicely, mysterious. And it's because of an encounter. It's, an, it's because of a very real encounter. And what I always say to anyone that I'm speaking to that's a non-believer is that I might just be insane. I might just be crazy. It might just be the bad combination of like my diet and uh, genetics that makes me have this wacky and weird belief system. I'm fully on board with that possibility. But 
I believe it. You know, so what I'm saying is this might just be a really wacky trip that I'm on, but it is the trip that I'm on. You understand the difference, right? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think the camp that I belong in have this tendency to not believe you when you say that you've had an experience. So I will say that I am happy to accept that you did in the same way that I'm happy to accept when a Muslim does or a Hindu does. Where I think the sticking point is, is where that gets attributed to. And I think you, you made a really, your, your analogy of the plane crash was brilliant because they potentially did have a, a, what they would classify as a spiritual experience, but I think mysterious might actually be a better label because it's an experience that I'm assuming there isn't a naturalistic explanation for. But does that mean the supernatural explanation is necessary? Without the supernatural, there cannot be free will. And without free will, there cannot be morality. And without free will, it's also impossible to have reason or science or justice or truth or life or beauty or anything else. Is it possible for you to define supernatural for me? Not natural. The natural world is matter energy configurations distributed throughout space-time. Now, science, natural science, deals with those configurations and it makes predictions. And the reason that natural science works is because we live in an orderly universe. And there is cause and effect. There are principles that are taken as axiomatic in all the natural sciences. For example, the principle of sufficient reason tells us that when there's a little dip in our curve of our perfect data in the laboratory, we don't just say, there's no reason for that. We always say, what is the reason for that? Find the reason for that. The relationship between cause and effect, basically. Yeah. Causality is, is a principle. It's a basic principle. Without it, there's no science. And uh, the principle of sufficient reason and the principle of proportionate causality. That means that you can't give what you don't have and that everything we see in the effect was in the cause, so what resides in the effect resides in the cause. This is that vertical component of causality that I'm exploring now with uh, blessed John Duns Scotus of the 13th century. He's known as the subtle doctor of the church because his thinking is very subtle. So uh, I'm going to take uh, probably a year to digest everything. It took me eight years to tackle Anselm's ontological argument. I still don't completely understand it, but it was very critical in my conversion to God. Are you familiar with Anselm's ontological argument? I've heard a couple of the ontological arguments. Uh, the concept of God that we can imagine, he must be the greatest possible being that we can conceive of. Don't put the label God on it yet. It's just that than which nothing greater can be conceived. So it's sort of like the greater than sign, just in abstraction, greater than. It's always greater than. So if we limit that, then we've betrayed the definition. So if we cannot limit it to our minds, then we allow it to have a fuller reality. And therefore, we know with certainty that it exists. Now, this proof is a riddle of sorts. It has been very hotly contested. My hunch is that it's true and that it's airtight, but I can't prove it. And uh, many, many brighter minds have tried and failed. But that's not really my primary point. My primary point here is that by chewing on that, it was very helpful in my conversion to God. Even though I didn't know that I was seeking conversion to God, I was obviously a militant uh, anti-Catholic atheist. 
but I found philosophy interesting and I, ch- I did chew on it and it did kind of bother me in a way that I couldn't easily dismiss it. So it was sort of like a seed that was planted in my mind. And I think it's the same with the conversion of a lot of atheists. If you do study ideas and philosophy and religion, there are seeds being planted. I don't know if you see that as a warning uh, that would sort of uh, put you off of studying philosophy. No, no, no. So it's not that I'm I'm deterred by that. I think with with the with the ontological argument that we yeah, that that it still does sound like defining a god into existence. There's, I mean, we're essentially saying we have a really great imagination and therefore that thing that we've imagined at the most that we possibly can probably exists. Well, I mean, you'd you'd still have to demonstrate that, wouldn't you? If everything is natural and if there is a sufficient reason for everything with this principle of sufficient reason and if causality, the principle of causality and proportionate causality, if these principles hold true and if, of course, the underlying principles of identity and non-contradiction and the excluded middle, if all these fundamental laws of thought are true, and we do take them for granted in doing science, and if there's only the natural, if every cause is natural and every effect is natural, then hard determinism is necessarily the case, and there is no way for anything to be other than what it is. It just is what it is, and so there is no freedom whatsoever. There's only the illusion of freedom. Have we determined that, that free will is real? No, but are you willing to deny that you have free will? I would say that earlier in my life, uh, I would have said absolutely yes, there is free will, but my reasoning for it would have been that it's self-evident. That, well, obviously, look at it, but yeah. self-evidence is is just the ultimate subjective experience it's not shouldn't be convincing for anyone else and if it's not convincing for anyone else in my opinion it shouldn't be convincing for you either so i would say that at the moment i am i am not convinced that we have free will and i have heard and 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 seen arguments and and experiments and the like that may highlight that free will is an illusion but just from my perspective yeah i'm not convinced that free will is actually a thing that exists yeah the uh, the the f word came up recently um, What's that? faith do you have a do you have a <laughs> definition for faith yeah it's belief without proof okay uh belief without evidence cool um no 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 no, no. i didn't say belief without evidence i never said that i'm sorry i must have misheard you then i know i said belief without proof so, for example, I do not have faith that God exists. It's demonstrable. And all of the monotheistic religions draw on these proofs, especially Catholicism, but also other forms of true Christianity. And even back in the day, Islam. Islam has modified its relationship with philosophy, unfortunately. And so it's distanced itself a little bit from reason. It's more faith heavy. Yeah, it's taken a fideistic turn, meaning that the absolute transcendence of God has made them suspicious of reason. And uh, if you read the history of Western philosophy, you'll see uh, the character of Immanuel Kant. He set the stage for that insurmountable gulf between what actually is objectively and what we are able to know subjectively, and it's called transcendentalism, this worldview that he spawned, 
and uh, Islam and a lot of branches of Protestantism now fall into what I call fideism, meaning that we have to have faith, we can't trust reason. Martin Luther himself said that reason is a whore, and that's a bit ironic because he broke his vows of celibacy and chastity and uh, was whoring it up himself, so I, I don't know if that was a compliment or an insult to call reason a whore. But anyway, the the basic idea is that you can use reason, but uh, some of the so-called monotheistic religions have drifted away from their trust in reason, but the Catholic Church, for one, has always maintained that faith and reason are completely compatible. There's no reason to distrust reason. On the contrary, God himself is reason, so uh, there's no reason to be afraid of reason. That was a very interesting last sentence. Um, <laughs> I, 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 and maybe maybe it's because I, I'm not familiar with uh, the the proofs of God as as, as you're familiar, with, and and maybe this is something that we can connect with. Um, and after I, after I after I get on your level of understanding, we we can have this conversation. Check out Saint Thomas Aquinas's second way. He has five ways to prove the existence of God. Check out the second way. It's the proof from efficient causality. Check that out. And I've been obsessed with the temporal series of causality. I could walk you through that one, but I'm just so bored of saying it over and over and over again. But if you want, I'll walk you through it quickly. Let's do it quick if it's one that you're familiar with. Yeah, it's one I'm familiar with because it's one that I came up with. The basic idea is entropy. The laws of thermodynamics, and I studied physics at university, so the laws of thermodynamics are among the most fundamental and most well-accepted, universally well-accepted laws in physics, okay? And the first law states that there is a fixed amount of energy in the universe, and by the universe it means the matter-energy configurations distributed throughout all of space-time. That includes every model. It doesn't matter if it's bouncing universes, string theory, or whatever, what your model is, doesn't really matter, okay? Multiverses, whatever. The total thing, I call it the universe. Some people like to call it the cosmos. But anyway, the first law states that there is a set fixed amount of total energy. Energy is not created and energy is not destroyed. The second law is that the amount of usable, useful energy that can be converted into work is constantly declining. It's it's never increasing on average, even though locally we can increase it, like for example, by charging a battery. But it's always at the cost of that global amount of useful energy. And so what this means is that there is a heat death of the universe, which is inevitable, it's coming, and it has not yet arrived, therefore there's a finite amount of time behind us, and therefore there is a supernatural first cause. The definition of supernatural being that which exists outside of our space-time. You can, uh, if you're comfortable with that, you can use that. I mean, that I don't know if that's an exhaustive definition. Not natural is more exhaustive than being outside of space-time, but I think we can use that. So, if something is occurring outside of our space-time, that, if I accept that, I, I still don't see that as a god. There are many logical implications for the fact that everything in nature came from this non-natural atemporal, non-spatial being, okay? Hang on, when, when, did we dis- when did we discover it's a being? Well, I'm using the word being in its most broad sense. An existent thing. Yeah. Okay, brilliant. So, this, this existent thing outside of our space-time may have caused our universe slash cosmos as we know it. No, it's not that it may have, it must have, logically. If, if the universe had a beginning? 
No, if it had no beginning, that means infinite time behind us, and we know there's not infinite time behind us, because the heat death, which is inevitable, has not yet arrived. Well, I, my understanding of, of time, and, and this could be way outside of my field, uh, time exists as at the creation of our universe. So so that's why concepts like before the Big Bang don't really apply. So so there could be there could be what we would refer to as a finite time, but then prior to that event time wasn't really a concept, so the the idea kind of falls on its head. Yeah, this is called an antecedent. It's logically prior. It's not prior in time, because it can't be prior in time. Time began with creation, as you said. I like your choice of word there, by the way. But the reason that we accept the existence of God is because we have no choice. It's not like cavemen were sitting around the campfire saying, what's a really stupid idea we can make up and everyone will give us uh, 10% of their income, you know? No, people were thinking about the contingency of the natural world and where it must have come from because it cannot have come from itself. And you asked why there must be beginning. It's because, like I said, there is a time limit to how long it takes for the heat death to come because of entropy. One of the one of the assumptions that we're making is that it must be a finite time because we exist in a finite time, but you're referring to a period where time was not existent, let alone finite. There's only a certain amount of energy in the universe, and a certain percentage of that is useful energy that can be converted into work, and the amount of useful energy is constantly declining until there's no more useful energy, right? So if you told me that you thought there was no first cause, or that there was possibly a first cause, but that first cause was natural, meaning spatiotemporal, then I would say both of those hypotheses are impossible. Why? Because no first cause means infinite time behind us, and a natural first cause means infinite time behind us. But infinite time behind us would mean that the heat death would have arrived. It has not arrived. Therefore, there is a supernatural or non-natural first cause. Isn't the heat death dependent upon the laws of thermodynamics? Or, or, or posited by, I should say, the laws of thermodynamics? Yeah, which we observe today. Correct, but those are laws that describe our current universe, not a state prior. But remember when I said that I want you to acknowledge that the laws of entropy apply to every model of every universe? Well, it only applies to one that has time in it, surely. Because that the nature the, the nature of entropy is temporal, isn't it? Yeah. All of the non-temporal stuff does not take any time, so that does not inhibit my approaching heat death in the slightest. It doesn't delay the heat death in the slightest. The heat death is coming because of entropy, and we know that. And if you want to jam a whole bunch of atemporal universes in here, you haven't bought yourself even one millisecond. The heat death is coming. That's a prediction, uh, likely an accurate one, made based on the laws of thermodynamics, which only apply to the current state of our universe. Right. But non-temporal universes do not buy you any time. Do you understand? Oh no! Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm comfortable. I'm comfortable with the the inevitable heat death of of the universe. That's 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 okay. I'm fine with that. All, all I'm saying is, from from my perspective, even if I consider that there is a first cause outside of space time, there's still a little bit of work to to make him the man in the clouds with the white beard. I'm not suggesting that you think that God looks like that. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I appreciate that. But um, at the end of my interviews, I do ask my guests to give a little closing thought, just a little message of hope, 
So just to wrap up the show, what do you think you might be able to say to anyone that's out there listening now? I'd say that irrespective of what your belief is in a god, uh, we can all agree that this is a planet that we're sharing together and there's no reason to have disagreements turn into hostility. Uh, our conversation today was a highlight that people with differing worldviews can have a civil and friendly conversation about these kinds of things uh, with no ill will and ideally that would spread to the comment section of every social media and face-to-face -face interactions. If you like your worldview, if you think it's swell, if you've got some questions, ask me and I'll tell. All you've got to do is ask. All you've got to do is ask.